0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in
1: person. This day, our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, lead us not into temptation. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and into the ages of ages. Amen. Most Holy Lady, Mother of the First Priest, pray for us. Please join me in welcoming Robert Riley. Well, it's a a tremendous delight to be back at the Institute for Catholic Culture. It's a privilege to be with you. It lifts my spirits whether I'm up at the podium or in the audience for one of these talks. And I'm particularly delighted uh, that I was asked to talk about Solzhenitsyn and modern ideology because I was a tremendous fan of his, so much so that my oldest son's middle name is Alexander. Now, it's been a privilege to speak uh, several times over the past year to ICC, I think it was about a year ago I was giving a talk uh, in Great Falls about the religions of Abraham, uh, Christianity, uh, Judaism, and Islam, and is it the same God. I got lost on my way there, so Deacon Sabatino was in a high state of uh, alarm. I actually made it on time, but I was in back of the room with a crowd and he couldn't see me. So. I saved him from cardiac arrest, but then I went up to the podium and I opened the folder to find uh, research materials instead of my notes for the lecture that night. So any of you who were there may have noticed some long pauses. Uh, And then, uh, as Monica was kind enough to mention, just uh, six weeks ago or so, we did a double header on, on the subject of my book, making gay okay, how rationalizing homosexual behavior is changing everything, in case you didn't notice. (laughs) And if you haven't suffered enough, there are some copies of the book for sale in the back of the room. Happy to to sign them for you during the break. Uh, In each of these occasions, I have made it clear uh, that this subject matter was sufficiently distressing that I would uh, conduct the lecture with an adult beverage. (laughs) That was certainly the case with uh, Islam, uh, certainly the case with the so-called homosexual marriage. And I think atheism qualifies for a a drink, don't you? There's a lot of material to cover here. So what I would uh, like to do is briefly go through Solzhenitsyn's great Templeton lecture. It's one of a number of lectures he gave when he came to the United States. He gave a Harvard commencement speech. He gave two great talks to the AFL-CIO, uh, George Meaney and Lane Kirkland, with whom I knew and worked with during the Reagan administration. Uh, and this subject matter we're going to cover tonight is particularly dear to me because I was a foot soldier in the Cold War. And I worked on these issues and actually with some of the people we'll talk about this evening. So we'll go through the, the the talk itself, pointing out a couple of important things. Then what I would like to do is take you through the structure of ideological thought, which is what Solzhenitsyn so brilliantly did in his lectures, uh, but he couldn't do it all in one lecture because the subject matter is is it requires greater length and depth, and the reason why this is still relevant to us today is because we're even though Marxism has been discredited in most of the world, the structure of the ideological thought underlying Marxism is still very much alive, and it's still the character of ideological thinking, and as I think you'll see, it it also is the character of the new atheism that has become so popular. So here is the principal point which Solzhenitsyn begins with very clearly, that men have forgotten God and that's why all this has happened. All what? The disaster in the Soviet Union uh, that took that great country uh, into the Gulag Archipelago as Solzhenitsyn called it, with such not only physical devastation, but spiritual devastation of a kind in depth that it is very hard for us to understand because we live in a still relatively free society. In, uh, I was not allowed into the Soviet Union when I worked for the US government. Uh, So when I left the Reagan administration, I finally got to go during the last days of the evil empire, I made three trips. And I was a guest of a member of the Politburo. I stayed in this very fancy hotel for members of the Central Committee of uh, Foreign Communist Parties. I had a five-room suite, Chica limousine. I'll never forget the instant when I got out of a Chica limousine. And a babushka, you know, a grandma, look at me, spat, and said, dirty communist. <laughs> I thought, well, that's a new twist on my life in the Cold War. But I must say, in, in, my, in my travels there, in my meetings, I went to factories, I went to tried to understand the kind of change that might be possible in that country after those many decades of enforced atheism and totalitarianism. And the the refrain I heard most often from the people there was, we just want to be normal. We just want to be normal. But the more I probed and discussed with them, what normal meant is they had, they had absolutely no idea. Normal was gone. And actually the Babushka generation, the people old enough to remember what was normal before that revolution were, were pretty much gone. So it was very strange. I remember one night, I was with the former Under Secretary of State and some other people were meeting with what was supposed to be one of the intellectual free market reformers in the Soviet Union under Perestroika and Glasnost. So we're having a meeting in his office at night, and he's talking about how they're gonna privatize uh, things and real estate and everything is is gonna be fine. And one of my colleagues said, well, to start off, you have put enough concrete in the bomb shelters that you have built in Moscow that you could have built an eight-lane highway from Moscow to Vladivostok all the way on the other side. He said, so the first thing, uh, why, since there is no prospect of a war with the United States at this point, why don't you just stop building these? All you're doing is you know, storing props from the Moscow Art Theater in them. Just stop. Do you know what his answer was? These people have nothing else to do. And you went, uh, oh, that's, that's an economic reformer? I think we have a problem. Anyway, I should stop telling stories and get on to this. So men have forgotten God. That's what happened. So, but, but here is the, the interesting thing. He says right away, if I were called upon to identify briefly the principal trait of the entire 20th century, not just the Soviet Union, I would be unable to find anything more precise and pithy than to repeat once again, men have forgotten God. Well, what was it like before they forgot? And he briefly says, during those centuries, the orthodox Christian faith in our country became part of the very pattern of thought and the personality of our people. The forms of daily life, the work calendar, the priorities in every undertaking, the organization of the week and of the year, Faith was the shaping and unifying force of the nation. Well, in the West, we know about that too. That used to be called Christendom. All right? Then he goes on to say, by the time of the revolution, faith had virtually disappeared in Russian educated circles, and amongst the uneducated, its health was threatened. I wonder, do you think faith has disappeared in the educated circles in the United States, on the media, in the academy, and so forth? Yeah. So I think what he says is relevant here. It was Dostoevsky once again who drew from the French Revolution and its seeming hatred of the church the lesson that, quote, revolution necessarily begins with atheism, unquote. go on to see why that is so that atheism is the foundation of revolution but the world had never before known a godlessness as organized militarized and tenaciously malevolent as that practiced by marxism within the philosophical system of marx and lenin and at the heart of their psychology hatred of god hatred of god is the principal driving force more fundamental than all their political goals and economic pretensions. Militant atheism is not merely incidental or marginal to communist policy. It is not a side effect but the central pivot. See, Solzhenitsyn a number of times would remark that a tyrant could do great harm. Uh, but when the but since his tyranny uh was in his person, once he was gone, so was that harm. The problem he pointed out in communism and other totalitarian ideologies is it institutionalized the evil. The lie about humanity was institutionalized, so it didn't matter when one of the Uh, Secretary Generals of the Communist Party died, he was just replaced by another one in the same institution. Since it was based upon a lie, its principal means of enforcement was, of course, violence under all of them. Okay. So, since atheism was the principal institution, I mean the principal foundation, oh, dear. Sorry about that. Someone's sabotaging this talk. (laughs) Therefore, the, um, this, this, it's a $15 target. Um, <laughs> and it does this little, this little song when you turn it on and off. It's very irritating. So what happened as a consequence of this was the wholesale uh, attempted destruction of Christianity. So Solzhenitsyn says, Tens of thousands of priests, monks, and nuns, pressured by the Czechists to renounce the word of God, were tortured, shot in cellars, sent to camps, and exiled to desolate tundra of the far north, or turned out in the streets in their old age without food and shelter. All these Christian martyrs went unswervingly to their deaths for their faith. Instances of apostasy were few and far between. For tens of millions of laymen across the church, access to the church was blocked, and they were forbidden to bring up their children in the faith. So they went to their deaths unhesitatingly as martyrs. I've got an example of one such that I want to read to you the prayer he wrote before he died in the concentration camp. And I'm speaking, when this happened in the late 1940s, I'm talking about Archpriest Gregory Petrov in a Siberian concentration camp. The inspiration for his prayer came from the dying words of St. John Chrysostom. Glory to God for everything. So Archpriest Petrov, surrounded by death, misery, starvation, just before he died, prayed this, quote, I have often seen your glory reflected on faces of the dead, with what unearthly beauty and with what joy they shone, with what unearthly beauty and with what joy they shone, how spiritual their features immaterial. It was a triumph of gladness achieved, of peace. In silence they call to you. At the hour of my end, illumine my soul also as it cries. Alleluia, alleluia. Can you imagine faith of that strength and profundity? That that is this priest's final prayer? That's just a little tiny insight into what Solzhenitsyn talks about of the, the, the price of faith in the Soviet Union and how strong it was in these tens of thousands of priests and nuns and religious as they were taken to the slaughterhouses. And of course, if you read the volumes of the Gulag Archipelago, you can read so many uh, stories. So this is the faith that Solzhenitsyn was talking about. Um, but there's, there's more to this. There were people in those camps who found faith. It's as if when they were on the cross, they found Christ on the cross. And here we can refer to Solzhenitsyn himself, of course, who was an atheist. And what happened to him in the camp? And I'm going to read to you an excerpt from a poem he wrote while in camp. And the reason it survived is that he memorized it. Quote, but passing here between being and nothingness, stumbling and clutching at the edge, I look behind me with a grateful tremor upon the life that I have lived. Not with good judgment nor with desire are its twists and turns illumined, but with the even glow of the higher meaning, which became apparent to me only later on. And now, with measuring cup returned to me, scooping up living water, God of the universe, I believe again. Though I renounced you, you were with me. So this man writes, bless you prison, bless you for being in my life. For there lying upon the rotting prison straw, I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity as we are made to believe, but the maturity of the human soul. Bless you, prison. Do you think if you were in a concentration camp for eight years, you could say, bless you, prison? You know, the people who, who, who went through this had sort of their memories wiped. The, the destruction was so uh, complete uh, that uh, there was no idea of normal or of God. One of my closest neighbors is a Russian. He was a physicist. He was part of the reform movement in the Soviet Union. His father had been uh, the conductor of a Soviet army orchestra and of course he had had, there was no religion in his family, there was no God. How could you be a Soviet army conductor and of course you're a member of the party. So Victor moved here and um, began wondering about things. He began reading the New Testament. He came to me and said, these, I think these, these claims in which um, Sorry, it belongs here. These claims uh, in which Jesus is supposed to have claimed to be divine, the son of God, all of these can be understood in, uh, in terms of the local circumstances to mean something else. And I said, no, no, Victor, that's, that actually isn't possible. The claims are unambiguous. This is why the Pharisees tore their garments, which is what they would do in the face of blasphemy. When you say, before Abraham was, I am, everyone knew he was claiming divinity and equality with God. Um, So I gave Victor a book about this in which the claims to divinity were gone over. And a year ago, he was baptized in the Russian Orthodox Church. And then Victor went back to one of his visits. He wasn't from Moscow, he was from down in the south, and was able to find the graves of his relatives who had been killed by Stalin. So this long effort at recovery, recovery of memory of the lost, was a temer- terribly moving, hard experience for Victor to go to those graves. But it was a recovery of memory, just as a recovery of faith to, to restore a wholeness after this kind of devastation. It can't be done quickly when it's, the damage is that deep. Now, Solzhenitsyn also mentions in one of his other talks this kind of bravery. And he says, quote, let's take Vladimir Bukovsky as an example. It was proposed to him, all right, we'll free you. Go to the West and shut up. And this young man, a youth today on the verge of death, this was back in the 70s, this youth today on the verge of death said, no, I won't go this way. I have written about the persons whom you have put in insane asylums. You release them and then I'll go to the West. This is what I mean by that firmness of spirit to stand up against granite and tanks." Vladimir Bukovsky, whom I got to know pretty well, and worked on some projects with him in a group he was running called Resistance International. And I was talking with him one night, he was at my house for dinner, and I told him, I remember, Vladimir, in this age of the anti-hero, I was watching the news one night. I think I was in the army at the time, early 70s. No, no, I would even late 60s. And Bukowski had gotten out of prison. He was one of the few periods in which he was free before he was arrested again. And he took a, an American television reporter into a Moscow park and said, film this and take the film out. So I watched riveted as this man said, I am out of a psychiatric prison and while I still have the use of my faculties, I want to tell the truth, which he then went on to do about the Soviet Union. And of course, what they did to people like Bukovsky is they'd strap him in a bed and shoot him up with sulfazine. And if you have too many applications of the sulfazine, your brain is gone. And Vladimir knew this would be done for him again, particularly if this, tape got out of the Soviet Union. So he took this moment of truth, this opportunity for truth, at the price of his own mind to do it. So when I watched this tape, I said, the anti-heroes, no heroes? Look at this man. Vladimir was eventually exchanged over some bridge in Switzerland, and he, he he, he did get out and continued the fight. And I was talking to Vladimir about faith, and God, and so forth, and we recalled that seen in the Moscow park because the reporter got it out and it was shown that's how I could see it and he said to me do you know you know what I was doing don't you and I said what and he went now however Solzhenitsyn goes on to say the West's own historical evolution has been such that today it too is experiencing a drying up of religious consciousness it too has witnessed racking schisms bloody religious wars and rancor to say nothing of the tide of secularism that from the late Middle Ages onward has progressively inundated the West. Imperceptibly through decades of gradual erosion, the meaning of life in the West has ceased to be seen as anything more lofty than the pursuit of happiness. The West is ineluctably slipping toward the abyss. Western societies are losing more and more of their religious essence as they thoughtlessly yield up their younger generation to atheism. Atheist teachers in the West are bringing up a younger generation and a spirit of hatred of their own society. All attempts to find a way out of the plight of today's world are fruitless unless we redirect our consciousness in repentance to the creator of all." Well, that's, those are some of the highlights from this great Templeton address. If I can now, what I would like to do is take you through the structure of ideological thought that he was talking about. In a world split apart, Uh, which is another one of Solzhenitsyn's talks, he traced the sources of modern ideology to the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and said the two strongest tenets are, quote, an autonomy of man from any higher force above him and the refusal to admit to the existence of intrinsic evil in man. So nothing above man and man has no evil within himself. Now that's very interesting because everyone has the common experience of evil. Um, Everyone desires to be happy but experiences unhappiness. And then there is that great evil of death itself. So we seek and find nothing adequate in this world to satisfy our deepest longings and yearnings. So we've always been confronted with the fact of evil and everyone admits there's something radically wrong with the world. However, the Judeo-Christian Revelation and tradition, science hi Monica, that's right, it's a 30 minute one, so I only have an hour worth of material to go through, so we'll have to pick up the pace. Um, so Christianity and Judaism locates the source of that evil, not extrinsically, not uh, in God himself, as did so many of the ancient mythologies, There was a demi-urge of good and a demi-urge of evil contesting for control of creation. And that's why we had eruptions and things, all manifestations of the fight between the two demi- No, no, no. As we know from Genesis, God is all good and everything he made was good. So how did this evil enter the world? It entered through man, through his, his will, the misuse of his freedom. And this is what threw creation out of kilter. But Christianity then also offers an answer to the problem of evil and to that great final evil of death by, as Archbishop Sheehan used to say, giving the world the only wound it has ever suffered, an empty tomb on Easter morning. That empty tomb broke the grip of evil and death over us through the death and resurrection of our Lord, which makes then comprehensible The view of man, his existence, the meaning of it, the richness of suffering, which you could see reflected in what I've already recounted to you from Solzhenitsyn and the others. Bless you, prism. The embrace of and the redemptive meaning of suffering in our Lord Jesus Christ that then transforms into, in cooperation with his grace, a salvation in eternity transcendent to this world. So this is how we made sense of things. This is how the, the, the period of which Solzhenitsyn spoke about the reign of faith. This was, this was the reign of faith, both in Christendom and in Eastern Orthodoxy. So the purpose of man was firmly embedded in the natural and divine order of things. And if man could not feel at home here, he had the reassurance that he was meant for elsewhere. As St. Augustine said in those unforgettable lines, my heart is rest, no, our hearts are restless. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Now, if we want to get to the structure of modern ideology, we have to understand that it feeds off of Christianity and of the view of reality I just gave you. As much as it claims to be a rejection of Christianity and religion, it mimics it, it's the, ob, it's the obverse of it, it's the negative of it, but it gets its principal features from Christianity and this view of, salvific view of man. Because in every step of the way, you will find an ideology in ersatz original sin and ersatz fall of man, um, some account of evil and some plan of salvation. Albeit now, The locus of salvation has been moved from a transcendent God to within history, meaning that politics now is transformed into the engine of salvation. Politics becomes salvific, which is the the, the pretension of politics to become salvific is what makes it totalitarian because then anything can be done in its name. Anything can be justified in terms of totalitarian rule, because each of these ideologies has come up with a scheme to remove evil. And we know in these various schemes, they all operate the same. They all have the same basic structure. One will say, we can solve the problem of evil in this world by killing all the Jews and enslaving the Slavs through the supremacy of the Aryan race. Obviously, Nazism. And uh, communism says, no, we can, we can solve the problem of evil in this world, which is based on private property. You see, the alienation of man from himself came from private property, not from his sin. So if we, we eliminate private property by liquidating the property owners and the bourgeoisie, we can uh, create this classless society that leads to uh, man's com- completion and uh, total satisfaction. So the paradise uh, is still there, but it will be in this world. And the na- in the name of achieving it, you can do absolutely anything. That's the engine of self-justification. Now, who this new man is to be was made explicit in the 19th century by Marx and Nietzsche. And before anyone can get away, I'm going to go into the metaphysics of this mad enterprise so we know the terms in which they themselves spoke of it and you'll see uh, the relevance of it to this day. Both Nietzsche and Marx spoke in terms of classical metaphysics. They posed the problem of the human condition in the familiar metaphysical terms of existence and essence. Marx described communism as quote the true resolution of the conflict between existence and essence it is the riddle of history solved and knows itself as this solution unquote nietzsche saw his task to quote impress the character of being essence upon becoming existence unquote what are they talking about what they're talking about this problem between essence and existence is that um, we don't exist necessarily we are what you call contingent creatures. That is, we cannot account for our own existence. We used to not exist, and soon we'll be dead. we contingent, but everything within our experience is contingent. Nothing accounts for its own existence. Why not? Because once it wasn't, then it is, and soon it will pass out of existence again. That happens to all creatures, It happens to physical things that decay and rot and and dissolve. So nothing we know of is not contingent. Nothing we know of can account for its own existence. And therefore, we are naturally led to conclude that there must be a being who is the cause of his own existence. Because you can't logically say, well, I came from my father and he from his grandfather, the great grandfather, and we can just keep going back and that accounts for it. No, it doesn't. You, because it's, it's illogical to have an infinite regress of beings who are caused because th- there could never have been a beginning. And if there was a beginning, it would have to be from a cause whose essence is his existence. It had to be from an uncaused cause. And how does Yahweh introduce himself to Moses? I am who am. I am the uncaused cause. And thus when our Lord, in one of the most electrifying statements ever made, said before, Abraham was, I am. He's going back to to Moses and Yahweh and referring direct, I am. I am who am, I am I'm the one who exists necessarily, whose essence is existence. We only have existence. We don't, ex- if our, our essence isn't existence or we would have always existed. We would have been inter- eternal beings instead of being as we are, immortal. In the sense that our existence, having been created by God, we will always exist. So this is the problem that Nietzsche and Marx are talking about. How can, first of all, we've gotten rid of God, right? The essence of our revolution is atheism, no God. But we've got a problem on our hands now. And it's the problem of essence and existence or being and becoming. What are they going to do? They acknowledge this metaphysical problem. The modern enterprise tries to solve the problem of human existence of evil here in this world without God. Not having God provides the hope for certain advantages. The great hope of nihilism, in Nietzsche, as Nietzsche expressed it, is that, quote, man will rise higher when he ceases to flow into God, unquote. Man will rise higher when he ceases to flow into God, unquote. And he's drawing on the 19th century German Feuerbach, who said man is alienated from himself because he's assigned... What should be his to this mythical creation of God? Uh, in other words, it's the reverse of the Promethean, of it, uh, the Promethean myth in which you know, man stole fire from the gods. No, no, says Feuerbach and Nietzsche, it is God who stole fire from man, and our project is to get it back. And in essence, to make man God, right? Now, Marx said, quote, the religion of the workers has no God because it seeks to restore the divinity of man, unquote. The divinity of man without God. What what could that possibly mean? It It means making man God. So... Now, on what basis did these modern ideologues uh, decide on the inadequacy of Christianity and of God, that they would undertake this project to themselves become God? Was there some research project that produced this? Was it a discovery of some new truth? Nietzsche's answer is decisive. Quote, now it is our preference that decides against Christianity, not arguments. Unquote. So God's death is willed, not discovered. It's a matter of choice. Nietzsche's Zarathustra says, quote, if there were gods in existence, how could I endure not to be a god? Unquote. And now we get back to Solzhenitsyn's remarks about Lenin, quoting from Lenin, we must hate. Hatred is the basis of communism. Unquote. Now, the willful, anti-rational nature of this enterprise is clear in Marx because he forbade his followers from even thinking upon the matter of contingency. Because if you attend to the contingency of man, you must admit the existence of God. You see, there could have been some excuse uh, if we could say that the world itself is eternal which of course is what some of the ancients believed. Uh, And that's why they were pantheists. If the world is eternal, it means the world is God. And so pantheism, uh, uh, that's the basis of pantheism. But the the problem, that would have to mean that there's something in the world that doesn't change, that isn't contingent. And what modern physics and what science has discovered is that everything is contingent. There's nothing that doesn't change and that isn't changed by a cause that wasn't itself. So there's there's less excuse for this than there ever was. So the argument from contingency for the existence of God is more powerful than it's ever been. So what does Marx say about the question of contingency? Quote, this question is forbidden socialist man. That's how he solves the problem. Lenin was even blunter, quote, every religious idea, every idea of a god, even flirting with the idea of god is unutterable vileness of the most dangerous kind, contagion of the most abominable kind. Millions of sins, filthy deeds, acts of violence, and physical contagions are far less dangerous than the subtle spiritual idea of a God. But without God, the status of the world becomes problematic and perilous to say the least, as I'm saying, you know, you, the problem doesn't go away just because you deny it. Archbishop Sheen had a wonderful statement. He said, an atheist is a person with no invisible means of support. <laughs> And they felt this problem. Nietzsche and Marx felt this problem. Or I have to tell you another one of my favorites from my dear late friend, Joe Sobrin, who said, atheism is a temporary condition. You recover from it when you die. (laughs) Okay, so this great void opens upon the death of God, and they have to solve this problem. Therefore, they took upon themselves projects to make man exist necessarily, to make his essence existence, to make him literally God. This is the metaphysical goal of modern ideology, to remove man from contingency, to end history, to make man completely at home in the world by transforming him into God and his world into paradise through the total transformation of and total revolution against reality as it is. Total revolution. Anyone who thinks the goal is less than this, that it is just some kind of economic, political, or even military enterprise does not understand what is faced in the absence of God or more accurately by the willful dismissal of his existence. But how does man become God? How does he become the cause? Well, the first thing he has to do is to deny the existence of anything that doesn't come under his power. So the first thing you have to do is simply deny the reality of anything you can't control and accept as reality only those things which you can bring under your control. And of course, the means of control for these modern ideologues is the totalitarian state and the secret police and also their idea of science that will give them the absolute power Uh, to transform reality. So they have to abolish truth. That's, That's the first objective. Once truth is removed as an obstacle, all that is required is the acquisition of unlimited power. Modern ideology is the philosophy of unlimited power. Lenin made this explicit in Marxism, quote, the scientific concept of dictatorship, note scientific concept of dictatorship, is the acquisition of unlimited power, resting directly on force, not limited by anything, not restrained by any laws or any absolute rules, nothing else but that, unquote. Could that be clearer? In the Communist Manifesto, Marx emphasized communists, quote, openly declared that their ends can only be attained by the forcible overthrow of all existing institutions." Now, the central premise here is that if you can control all the circumstances of man's existence, you can then change man himself. So the premise of all of this, of course, is that there is no such thing as nature or natural law. If that existed, the enterprise would uh, philosophically be impossible to undertake. So we're going to, in order, this is the fundamental transformation of man into the new man, into the homo Sovieticus, or into the Aryan superman of Nietzsche. But the only way you could do that is the fundamental transformation of man by totally controlling the, the circumstances under which he lives, and for Marx, it was man is a product of the means of production. And thinking is simply an excrescence of material forces. So you're not gonna persuade anyone, they can only think according to how they're determined by the means of production. So you change the means of production. That changes how he thinks and he, uh, his fundamental nature. So this was the object and this is why uh, required totalitarian uh, control, and it's also why anyone who didn't conform with their theory was considered uh, just not only disposable, uh, but, but whose, whose elimination was necessary for the success of the transformation. So the Jews and the Gypsies and the Slavs, that was necessary for the Thousand-Year Reich and the triumph of Nietzsche's superman the elimination of the bourgeoisie, the elimination of priests and nuns, uh, property owners, of intellectuals. This was required for the construction of a classless society and ultimately of communist man. I am absolutely amazed, you know, by the claims. I knew Christopher Hitchens. Have you ever heard of his name? You know, God is not great, Christopher Hitchens. Um, who, who claimed that uh, religion is responsible for the, the greatest violence. I just don't know how he could possibly have maintained that. As Solzhenitsyn says in his address, not counting the fatalities from war in the Soviet Union, which by themselves in World War II were 20 million, the Soviet Union disposed of some 60 million of its own citizens. Not in time of war, that's a state doing that to its own, well, they weren't citizens, own subjects in the name of this transformation. And we know, of course, the close to 12 million in the Nazi concentration camps. And of course, the, the scores of millions in communist China, the elimination of somewhat one-third of the Cambodian population by Paul Pai, the horror list goes on, all based on atheism, all based on this metaphysical transformation of man. So the attempted deification of man has backfired into the charnel houses and slave camps of the various gulags. Those aspiring to be gods have become worse than animals. The great hope of nihilism was, from Nietzsche you will recall, man will rise higher when he ceases to flow into God. But in God's absence, the distinction dissolves not only between God and man, but also between man and animal. Nicholas Berdayev, a great Russian philosopher said, where there is no God, there is no man either. Or as my friend Paul Eidelberg pointed out, unless there is a being superior to man, nothing in theory prevents some men from degrading other men to the level of the subhuman. Thus emancipated from the oppression of what was above him, the transcendent, man has found himself under the tyranny of that which was below him. The great Christopher Dawson warned, when the prophets are silent and society no longer possesses any channel of communication with the divine world, the way to the lower world is still open and man's frustrated spiritual powers will find their outlet in the unlimited will to power and destruction. So man, through modern ideology, has tried to make his home here, and he has found his home is hell. Now, Solzhenitsyn elsewhere said, quote, this split in the world is less terrifying than the similarity of the disease afflicting its main sections, unquote. What he means here is that many of these same assumptions are shared in the West, the ones that I have laid out. Complicity in the sense that the same materialistic assumptions about man's nature are fundamentally shared with this ideology. As Solzhenitsyn said, man, the master of the world, does not bury any any evil within himself and all defects of life are caused by misguided social systems which must therefore be corrected. And we have no higher task than the attainment of happiness on Earth. Um, Well, this is, um, do I have time to talk about a few of them? No. What does that that mean? (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to say a little bit about the um, Our dear uh, new atheists, you know, I knew Christopher Hitchens, as I think I mentioned. The first time I saw him, actually, was across a pile of rubble in Baghdad in 2003. And I didn't go over to introduce myself because I was so angry at this man's denigration of Mother Teresa. So I had no, no desire to meet him. But curiously enough, in the following year, I got to know him and worked with him on some things. Because Christopher Hitchens happened to have been outraged by the mistreatment of the Iraqis under Saddam Hussein. And made a major, uh, made it a major part of his life at that point to defend what he said were the human rights of the Iraqi people. I, my time was working at the Pentagon on on some of these issues, and uh, he was extremely good on this. What I did not have the chance to do, because he subsequently died of esophageal cancer, by the way, before he died he requested a review copy of The Closing of the Muslim Mind, my book about Islam, which contains a great deal of theology in it, and I was hoping that he would read it, but he didn't long, live long enough to do that. Uh, but because he was animated by such a passion concerning the injustice that had been committed on the Iraqi people, I always wanted, I, just, I was going to take the next opportunity to say, Christopher, from where do you get your sense of injustice? Did you get to make that up? Or is there some standard in objective reality that lets you know to be outraged at this injustice? In fact, I had the opportunity one, I was actually, it was, a, it was an Easter luncheon, at uh, least Easter luncheon on the Upper West Side of New York. So you know, I was the only conservative there. <laughs> and one was a very nice guy say maybe in his late 50s at that time, who was an atheist. And he went on and on about why there couldn't be a God because of all these horrible things that are happening and all the injustice and this and that. There couldn't be a God. So I did get to ask him. I said, by the way, from where do you get your sense of justice that leads you to be so outraged, outraged at the injustice? So that's, he stopped and said, oh, that's a very good question. Which, of course, he couldn't answer. Okay, Monica, just what? Nope, just I don't have time to, maybe during questions, I can inflict some more of this on you. But I'm I'm just going to close with C.S. Lewis. Because as you know, he was an atheist and became a Christian. And he talked about his own experience. Quote, this is from Mere Christianity. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed, too. For the argument argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense, consequently Atheim, atheism turns out to be too simple. Let me end there, and um, I'll be back there to sign any copies of uh, my book from you, and back Thank to Monica. You very much. <laughs> Could you talk of the role of the um, French Revolution in setting the stage for what came after? Solzhenitsyn himself, in this lecture, talks about uh, the French Revolution and Dostoevsky's references to the French Revolution as the progenitor of this, sort of the prototype of all future revolutions. I remember about the French Revolution that they overthrew uh, the altar at Notre Dame and built a, a, a... a mound of earth on top of which they crowned as the goddess of reason, a Parisian prostitute. The, uh, that, that, um, who was the French pervert, uh, the, the Marquis de Sade? As the Marquis de Sade said, it is necessary not to only kill all the gods, but to kill God himself for the success of the revolution. Um, So this hatred, and then of course, as it was seen in the uh, executions uh, of the aristocrats and of the priests and of the nuns, nuns rounded up for doing nothing but practicing their faith and being beheaded I've been to France many, many times, and I usually take an anti-Jacobin pilgrimage to sites where they, they arrested these priests or nuns uh, and executed them. So it's, it's the prototype, it was animated by that hatred and this desire to reconstitute reality metaphysically through force. Is it the perception in the eyes of the revolutionaries that the church was closely associated with the government, the royalty, the monarchy, that they were overflowing You know, and Mexico, for example, is is another example. And would you contrast that with, say, the American Revolution and other Latin American revolutions in the early part of the 19th century? Yes, well, that in fact was the case. That the church had become too closely associated with the regime, and they had been too much turned into national churches uh, under the control of the king. Uh, After the Reformation, before the Reformation, the distinction between the two swords, the civil sword and the the ecclesiastical sword was very clear. After the Reformation, the the churches became national. And, And this, of course, was particularly true of Protestant churches. But that leached over into Catholicism, where the kings of Spain and France were only too happy to get more control over the church and to once again start appointing the bishops or not allowing any bishop that they hadn't approved of. So there was this unfortunate, during the, 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 the period of absolutism, this unfortunate identification with the church and the regime. And of course, it it's, takes a huge amount of time to recover from that identification the anti-clericalism in France and so forth because uh, the the church still hasn't recovered from that identification. Now that didn't happen in the United States because obviously the the Catholics were a tiny minority here and despised. Uh, There was a huge amount of anti-Catholicism here uh, in the 18th century which was only gradually overcome though the American founding was welcomed by Catholics because of the freedom of religion. So the the report back from uh, Bishop Bishop Carroll to the Pope was, this is the best thing that could have happened to us. Even though, of course, anti-Catholicism lasted for a considerable greater period. And now it's back. Mr.
0: Radley, could you comment on the co-opting that has occurred
1: with Catholic social teaching by community organizers like Saul Lewinsky and others who have basically not only co-opted but infiltrated the church at the highest levels? And could you comment
0: on how that has affected the course that we find ourselves on today?
1: Well, I think that John Paul II was the great champion in making very clear that liberation theology uh, was uh, a enormous distortion of the faith. And no one would have known that better than John Paul II because he lived through both ideological horrors of the 20th century, Nazism and communism. So when he saw the infiltration of communism into the church in liberation theology, and uh, in Latin America, he was very, very clear about it. But that temptation exists always to, uh, you know, put down the cross and pick up the machine gun. To to think that you can achieve what an intra-historical perfection. I mean, Christianity makes very clear. You don't know that you. You're going to struggle with evil. You're not going to eliminate evil here. Politics cannot eliminate evil. That's a spiritual problem that can only finally be addressed before the judgment seat of God. And as soon as you try to imminentize that and say, no, we are going to do this inside of history through our own power, you get the terrible distortion of the church uh, and the loss of its mission. With the fall of uh, Soviet Communism, how are the Russian people doing at remembering God? The fact that they're not doing too well is the symptom of the depth of the devastation. There's nothing I could have wished for them more than a recovery of their faith as exhibited in my friend about whom I told you who was baptized a year ago. Some of that has happened in Russia. Uh, Churches have been rebuilt. I can remember in one of my trips to the Soviet Union, I went to Our Lady of Kazan Cathedral, which had been turned into a museum of atheism. And here they had these pathetic dioramas of, of going through history showing, well, there's no religion here, there's none here, trying to explain everything in terms of something other than what it was. So it was the Museum of Atheism. And when I went back to my luxury Central Committee hotel, I was, had with me um, the great Hungarian priest, Father Stanley Yaki, who was part of the seminar we had put on, and he had gone somewhere else. So he said, Bob, how was the, how, how was what you saw? And I said, Well, it was an atrocity that they turned Our Lady of Kazan Cathedral into this museum of atheism. He was a very energetic man. He said, Do not worry, she will get it back. <laughs> and lo and behold, I remember the day when I opened the newspaper and read about the reconsecration of Our Lady of Kazan <laughs> Cathedral. Uh, So one hopes and prays for this kind of thing. um, But again, they had no normal. They, 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 They didn't know what normal was. They had lost all those reference points. And the other problem is, to be quite frank, since I was asked about the identification of the Catholic Church with the royal regime, is the identification of the Orthodox Church with the communist regime because it was allowed to exist only to the extent that it was controlled. So there's no question that the upper reaches of the Russian Orthodox Church were compromised by the KGB, by the Central Committee. Compromised and controlled. I remember another harrowing scene during our conference in Moscow we put on a conference in 89, what do you need to know about Western civilization? <laughs> Boy, I can tell you that was interesting. And there was a, a priest came up to us, an Orthodox priest. And he was wearing a pectoral cross, I think, so maybe, I don't know whether he could have been a bishop, but it was, it was creepy. He came up and spoke with, Father Yaki he had given a great talk. I'm standing with Father Yaki, he came up with Father Yaki and he, he Held his cross as if he were hiding it. Held a cross, but and the other thing I noticed is he wouldn't look us in the eyes. He's always looking here, or he's looking there. And he said, Well, you must realize how much we have suffered, how much the church has suffered here. We have suffered so much. And Father Yaki looked at him and said, Apparently not everyone chose to suffer. because it was more or less clear that this was one of the compromised people. Therefore, this identification, sorry, I didn't mean to alarm you. (laughs) I better step back here before I, uh, therefore the, the church was discredited in the eyes of many people because of that. So it has to, it not only has to recover from the wholesale slaughter that it underwent it has to recover from this compromise, so that people can be confident in it when when they try to recover their faith. So that's a very very long process. You know, it's only been 25 years, and and they were bludgeoned for much longer than that. Uh, but to the extent to which they have any hope of recovery, it has to be that spiritual recovery. So as we prayed for many many decades, remember after mass, if you're, you people as old as I we always prayed for the conversion of Russia and we I think we still should Thank you very Thank much you. Thank you
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the institute and how you may become a part of this important work